Desperate. Let me ask you a question this morning. Or have you ever been desperate? I mean, truly desperate. What does it mean to be desperate? The, desperate means the, the feeling, the showing, or involving a hopeless sense that a situation is so bad as to be impossible to deal with. A feeling, a showing, or involving a hopeless sense that a situation is so bad as to be impossible to deal with. Have you ever been desperate? I mean, really desperate. I'm talking about hopelessness. The, the weightiness of your circumstance seems to, to rest on your chest like an elephant. Your, your emotions are literally placed into a blender. You can't sleep, but all you long to do is to sleep. The situation that you're involved in, the circumstance that you're involved in seems to be impossible to deal with. You appear to be floating adrift in the sea of despair at night. And with each passing moment, as you tread that water, you realize this. At any moment, you could drown or you could be eaten by what you do not see. This is what it means to be desperate. When I was a staff pastor at another church, I received a phone call one day, or actually my beeper went off. I was on call, and yes, I said beeper. Um, and my beeper went off, and I was on call that weekend, and, and I looked down, and that was always a fun thing to receive because you never knew what was on the other line. So I call this person back from the call center and I pick up this, my phone and I'm talking to this lady who is frantic on the other end of the line. And uh, she was desperate. She was a nurse here in Bowling Green and was calling me in regards to a situation in her life that left her in great despair. She was giving a shot to one of her patients, and after giving the shot, she nicked herself with the needle, giving herself an incurable disease. This disease was highly contagious, and she had already given it to her son. There was high probability that she would one day give it to her husband, and this was causing major issues within their marriage within their relationship as this woman frantically was asking me what to do on the other line. This woman was desperate. You know, and in that moment, I want to be very honest, I really did not know what to say to her. I didn't know what to say to her because everything that came to my mind just seemed like some uh, really bad attempt to sling Christianese or, or really good, you know, scriptures that we love to use in those moments at her without really just caring for her. It's a very serious, serious situation. She was desperate. This morning, have you ever been desperate? Are you currently desperate? Today, we're going to really meet six extremely desperate people. We're going to meet a dad, a father, 
We're going to meet a a sick and dying daughter. We're going to meet a a sick woman. We're going to meet two blind men and a demon-oppressed gentleman. These are extremely desperate folks. My aim this morning is in hopes, if I was to take all this sermon and place it into a sentence, I guess we can dismiss after I tell you this, but my aim here this morning is for us to get this as a church body. That we would see the power and authority that Jesus has over our desperate situation, but also to realize that Jesus has come to save desperate people. Jesus has authority. He has kingship. He has power. He has sovereignty over your desperate situation. But we also need to understand this morning that Jesus has come to save those who are desperate. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we covered, at the end of chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And then over the chapters 8 and 9, this is what we have been witnessing, and this is what we're going to see Jesus doing for the rest of this chapter as Jesus is now illustrating his authority over every aspect of these people's lives, therefore, over every aspect of our lives. Jesus tells us, or the scripture tells us in in Matthew chapter 9 verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So the last thing that we saw that Jesus has called this tax collector Matthew, he is sitting at Matthew's house, he's eating with these tax collectors and sinners, these worst of worst of society, the people whom the the Jews have separated themselves were feeling that they would become unclean if they are around these people, and yet our Lord and Savior Jesus is eating with these folks, and as he's eating, he keeps getting interrupted. Last week we saw as John's disciples came and they were asking Jesus a theological question about fasting. And as they continued to eat after Jesus answered that, now we see a new guy, a man named Jairus that the Bible would tell us in the other Gospels, this ruler in the synagogue. Now, Jairus is not a priest, but he is an overseer. Let's let's think administrator for what is happening within the synagogue. This is a very prestigious job. This is a a place of of high respect to be the ruler, to be the administrator of what takes place at the synagogue. This was a, a person with great authority, power, and probably great wealth. He mixed around with the Jews, and, or the, the high Jews, the Pharisees. Um, this man probably knew the word. Again, he was probably extremely well respected amongst that Jewish community. And yet the Bible tells us in this moment that Jairus is found where? At the dirty feet of Jesus, surrounded by tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, sinners. And yet this man of of great authority is at the feet of Jesus. He is knelt at the feet of Jesus. And what is he doing? He is begging. 
Why would such a man of great honor and authority fall at the feet of a homeless man from Nazareth? And yet that is what we see Jairus doing in this moment. He is disgusted by tax collectors. He is disgusted by these sinners, and yet this man is at the feet of Jesus. Imagine the whispers that are now taking place in this setting as these people who highly respect Jairus are watching him at this man who is blaspheming and declaring and illustrating that he is God. What drives this man to do the unthinkable? What drives Jairus to do the unthinkable? Jairus is a desperate man. We have this common statement in our culture, don't we, that desperate times call for desperate measures. My daughter has just died. Now, if you're not a parent in here, there can be a disconnect But I want you to know as a parent of two children, I can think of very few things that are worse than bearing your own child or watching your child go through some incurable disease that there is literally nothing that you can do for your baby. There is nothing that you can do for your child. The other gospels tells us that, that this girl is 12 years of age. By this time, she has entered into womanhood. She is preparing to be married at the age of 12. I know this is a a majorly different culture than ours. But this woman is right at the threshold of becoming a woman. She is about to be given away possibly in marriage. And yet now this ruler of the synagogue has has used all of his resources, he has done all of his could do, all of these things would have been at his command, and yet there is nothing that has worked, and now his baby girl is dead. I can only imagine what that must be like. I pray that I never have to experience it, and I pray that you do not either. The Bible tells us here in this passage that what did Jesus do? Jesus has compassion. Jesus arose and follows him. So Jairus comes. Jesus is reclining. He is eating, conversing, celebrating with these tax collectors and sinners. Matthew is his most recent convert. He's having all these discussions. It would be interesting to peer in to see what Jesus is doing. And yet when this ruler comes and falls desperately at the feet of Jesus and is begging him to come and to touch his daughter and to raise her from the dead, Jesus arose and followed Jairus. Mark's gospel tells us, though, that a great crowd also huddles and follows Jesus to Jairus' house. The gospel of Luke tells us that the people pressed in around Jesus. So imagine just for a moment that uh, an ambulance is, is trying to get to the medical center and yet cars are weaving in front of it. They're not pulling over. That they're keeping this ambulance with a dying person in the back of it from getting where it needs to get. And that's a similar picture of what we see here. As Jesus is trying to get to Jairus' house, we see this, just, this huddle of people that are pressing into, squeezing around Jesus, making a great obstacle for him. And almost impossible for him to get there. The Bible tells us in the passage that Stephanie read to us, And behold, 
a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. So we have a 12-year-old daughter, and we have a woman who has been suffering with a disease also for 12 years. So as long as that baby girl has been alive, this woman has been suffering from this discharge of blood. For 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So in this rush to, to get to the girl, made difficult by the swarm of people, we learn now of another character. We've learned of a desperate father. We've learned of a desperate dead daughter. And now we learn of a desperate woman. A woman with a discharge of blood. Now, it is, it's believed by most scholars and, and Bible uh, thinkers that this issue of blood was a constant bleeding um, similarly to a woman's discharge during her menstrual cycle. And yet, this woman wasn't having this once a month. She was having bleeding from her womb every day. Every day. This is pre-feminine hygiene products. This is pre-modern medicine, and I wish I had time to go in today because there are doctors and nurses that they've come up with literally strange ways to try to cure women who had this during this time. And one of those was like, while the woman is drinking a cup of wine, someone sneak up behind her and say something like, be gone. That was one of the cures from the doctors. I don't know if that's going to work. All right? It didn't work for this lady. The Bible tells us in the other Gospels that she had suffered under many physicians. The Bible also tells us that she has spent all of her money trying to get healed from these doctors, but nothing and no one could heal this lady. The issue only got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Now what's interesting about this is what the Bible tells us about this very issue. In the book of Leviticus chapter 15, if you have sermon notes, I put an extra sheet of paper inside the weekly today to help you out because I'm going to be covering a lot of scripture. But in Leviticus chapter 15, 19 through 33, it says this, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall uh, be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. So if a woman goes on to, into her menstrual cycle for the next seven days, she is cut off from friends, family, from the synagogue, from worship, from all of those things because she is unclean. So for seven days that happens. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. So if you come across a female and she is in her menstrual cycle and you touch her, then you too are unclean. For that day and everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean everything also on which she sits shall be unclean and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening and whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening whether it is in her excuse me whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits when he touches it, he shall be unclean to the evening. 
And if any man lies with her, and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which you get the picture here. So a woman who is on her menstrual cycle, she is left alone for seven days. Now some of the men in here are like, amen. Some of the women in here are like, amen. Leave me alone. Give me seven days. All right, this is all, all part of the organic process of creation that God has placed into here. But there's also this idea of just this idea of remaining pure. That I can't even touch the seat that a woman has been on who has been in this situation because therefore I am unclean. Anyone who touched this woman or touched anything that she has touched is what? They're unclean. And this woman has been struggling with this every day for 12 years. Brothers and sisters in Christ, she is cut off from society. She is a social outcast. She is lonely, probably weak from the constant loss of blood. Due to this, she would not be allowed to attend a worship gathering. She couldn't participate where in any of the ceremonial feasts for the Jews. She had to remain completely away from that. So imagine because of a, a sickness that you were having, you were not allowed to come and gather with us in worship this morning. You had to remain out. You have cancer? Oh, stay out. You have allergies? Stay out. You have a cold? Stay out. A hangnail? I don't know. Stay out. You're not allowed in here this morning. Imagine if she was single, she couldn't get married. Imagine for a moment, we don't know for sure, but imagine that this woman is married. If she's married, then she's been removed from her home. She's been removed from her children. But she's probably divorced. All because of a sickness. That she has no control over. There is nothing that she is battling this alone, herself. She is ostracized. She is cut off from society. This woman is opposite of Jarius. Jarius has a house, Jarius has family, Jarius has a job, Jarius has prestige he has authority he has he is well respected in society and yet where do we find this woman this woman she has nothing she is desperate might as well paint a scarlet letter across her chest everyone avoided her at all cost away from the community away from friends away from family she had none this lady was desperate, not over the past 24 hours, but for 12 years. And she has exhausted all of her options. It's quite possible she, that she could even be on the brink of death, imagining losing blood every day from your body for 12 years. Sovereignly, where is Jesus? He's in Capernaum. Jesus' ministry, he's been traveling around. We have seen Jesus do a lot of remarkable things, have we not? Jesus has been healing people. Jesus has just earlier in that day 
healed a paralyzed man as his friends have lowered him down through a ceiling. Jesus is doing all of these phenomenal things. He has just called this tax collector named Matthew. The word is spreading throughout the city, and this woman has either watched Jesus do these miraculous things from a distance, or she has heard through the grapevine that this rabbi named Jesus, this homeless man from Nazareth, is in town, and he has the, un- the unbelievable ability and authority in his speech, in his touch, to heal people. What is this woman convinced of? What did she say? If, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Then I can only touch his garment. But why does Jesus want to touch, or excuse me, why does this woman want to touch Jesus' garment? Well, maybe she's afraid of, she knows if she touches his skin, I guess, He's unclean, right? But she's convinced that all I need to do is to touch his garment. This is where we're going to spend a lot of majority of our time here this morning is in this idea of touching Jesus' garment. Because I believe that this is the overarching truth in all of these scenarios that we are going to see. How many of you ever forget? <laughs> few of us. How many of you notoriously forget? Raise your hand. I see a lot of husbands raising their hands and a lot of wives pointing at their husbands, right? We, we have a tendency to be notorious for this. We forget, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. Even with all the technology that we have, okay, gone are the days of beepers, all right? But within our own hands, we have these things called smartphones that can remind us to do all these things. We can take notes on it. We can sync our calendar with everybody in here. If you want to know my business, man, we can link Google calendars and know everything. And yet we are notoriously, many of us, some of us, forgetful. Did you know that God knows this about us? God knows that we are habitually forgetful. We are. We're, we're habitually forgetful. We, we struggle just a deep, deep habit of being forgetful in a lot of things. And we need reminders. In the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 15, again, God knows this. In, cha- in Numbers 15, 38 through 39, it says... This is God speaking to Moses. He wants the Jewish people to do something. He says, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart, and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. See, much of the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, it's a big circle, right? The Jews love God. They follow God. They remember God and his commandments. Then what do they do? They forget. 
And they pursue their own desires, their own whims, their, their own passions for their own glory. They want to do things their own way. And then what does God do? He brings them to repentance. They remember God's law. I mean, we, we have that whole section um, in one of the, the letters, right, where they have literally lost the Old Testament. Like they're having worship and, and the, the Old Testament, the actual words of God, the Torah, are dusty in one of the scroll rooms and literally they're cleaning it out one day. I mean, get this. This is in some ways the church, the people of God, the Jews. And, and they're gathering weekly, if not daily, and yet the word of God isn't even being used. It's dusty in a corner somewhere. Seems strange, right? Or ever so real. That we have forgotten God's word. And yet God gives them these reminders. He, we see this constant picture of Israel loving God and following him faithfully, followed by a season of forgetfulness and disobedience. God is a gracious God. He's a loving God. He wants to give reminders to his people. He wants to remind them of what he has commanded them to do. So he tells Moses, hey, on every man's clothing, on their outer garment, I want them to place a tassel on the end of that garment. And whenever they see that garment, every day that they wear it, which is every day for these men, they can be reminded of my word. It is something that they will take with them. The Jews wore this. Every male, at least, wore these tassels on the corners of their garments. It was a reminder to trust God in his word. Now, I'm going to teach you some Hebrew this morning, and I promise I know I'm about to nerd out. I'm about to lose some of you You're, that are already asleep. Just going over, brother, sister. All right. For those, the rest of you, I promise if you will stick with me, this is some meat and potatoes this morning. If you will follow along with me, there's a great truth and a great beauty here. The first Hebrew word that we're going to learn is talit. All right. Um, in Jewish custom, they would have had like a, a normal, their undergarments, their, their, their robe that they would have wore, and then they would have something called a tallit. Now, this is a modern tallit. This is actually called a prayer shawl or a tallit. Um, but imagine just for a moment that there was a hole in the center of this, and it was much longer. I would put it over my outer garment, and as I walked around, this would be there. Okay? This is called a tallit. And on the end of that tallit is called a kanaf. Everybody say kanaf. We're going to sound like we really know our stuff this morning. A kanaf is known as the corner. It is known as the fringe of the garment. In, in some cases, depending on if you're a priest, a ruler, or a king, at the kanaf or at the hem of the garment, it would be highly decorated. So this is a pretty expensive one I ordered from some Israeli company online a bunch of years ago. And you can see right there, it's got like the Ten Commandments embroidered into it. I mean, this, is a pretty, this one was pretty expensive because of inflation. Thank you, President. Um, and so we, we see this, this picture of this is kanaf. So talit 
literally means a covering, or it also means a tent, right? So it's raining outside. You don't want to get your undergarments wet. You can use this to cover yourself. At the end of that tent, at the end of that tallit, at the end of your outer cloak and garment is what? The kanaf, all right? It means um, wing. It means bird. It means the edge of your garment in Hebrew. Now, from that is what we call the tzitzi, or if you're from, I guess, the south, tzitzit, all right? <laughs> it's called tzitzi, all right? And this right here is the tzitzi. Did they make this up? I just read it to you in Scripture. This is what God wanted every Jew to wear. We have every reason to believe that for all generations, and if you still see Orthodox Jews as I did in our Spencer's, our, in our Starbucks the other day, there was a shorter version of this underneath a dad in his son's jacket, and these were hanging out of it. These are called tzitzi. All right? Tzitzi. Now, this is extremely important in looking at this idea of tzitzi. It's made up of eight strings, all right? And it has five knots in it, five knots. Each one of those knots represents one of the five books of the Torah, all right? So Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Each space represents the holy name of God, yod Hey vah Hey. It's where we get the name Yahweh. So literally every day on their clothing, they are packing around a physical reminder of the word of God, his commandments. They could remind, be reminded of the exile and, and God bringing them out of Egypt. They could be reminded of the word of God. They could be reminded of the full name of God. And as their, their flesh seeks to drift and to do their own thing daily as they walked around, whether you were poor or whether you are rich, a, a, a Jewish man would have had these on his Clothing, they were extremely important to them. Quick fact, this is free. If you take five knots plus eight strings, that equals 13. The word tzitzi, like Hebrew and Greek words, um, also carry numeric values. So the word tzitzi is 600. Added five and eight, you get 613. That is majorly significant in the Old Testament because God gave the Israelites not just 10 laws. He gave them 613 laws. I'm so glad that our God is a tangible God and for not very smart people like me, gives tangible reminders of these things. Now, why is this important? The, the hem of the garment, depending again on where you were in your class, where you were in society, the ends of this, the tips of it would have been very ornate and very expensive depending on if you were king or if you were the priest or the high priest or where you were in society. But even the common man would have worn these. We see this also in the book of 1 Samuel, right? You guys remember the story of David and Saul? Saul is God's king. Saul has gone nuts. Saul wants to kill David. David does not want to kill Saul. 
But David's men find Saul in a cave. And Saul is in the cave relieving himself. It says that his robe is down around his waist. He is in there using the restroom. And David sneaks in. And David has every opportunity to kill Saul and to take his throne from him. The Bible tells us that in Samuel that David sneaks in. He gets close to Saul, can kill Saul. And yet what does, Saul, what does David do? The Bible tells us that he cuts off the corner of his garment. He cuts off the kanaf. He cuts off the sitzi of the king. And the Bible tells us that David has great remorse over this. Why? He didn't kill him. But he as sure as said, I want you dead. I'm taking your symbol of authority. And David majorly mourns over this decision to do this to Saul because he was still God's man. We, we see this over and over and over again, this kind of picture that is taking place as, as we look at this. So we see that, that there, the tassels were a visible display showing others who you were in God, that you were God's chosen people. They were a reminder that God has given these people the word of God. In a culture and land where, where people engaged in the worship of idols and, and would sacrifice children to demons, God wanted to set the Israelites apart. So he gave them the food laws. He gave them circumcision, but he also gave them a daily reminder on the outside showing everyone of who these people were. As I mentioned a while ago, the word kanaf means wings. In the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, it says this, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. This is a, a messianic prophecy about the person and work of Jesus. It tells us that when the Messiah comes, that he will have healing in his wings. What's the word there for wings? Kanaf. Kanaf. We go back to our lady here. I believe that the, this woman, all that she had left, brothers and sisters, was the word of God. She knew the word. She had no money left. She had no hope left. She had no friends, no family. No one wanted anything to do with this desperate, desperate woman. And she was at her very wit's end. She had used every avenue to find healing and find hope, and she had nothing. But she remembered the words of Malachi 4-2, understanding that the Messiah would have real healing even in his the wings of his outer cloak he was that powerful he had that much authority this woman was all out of options all she had was the word of God picture this folks as Jesus is moving towards Jerry's house what does the Bible tells us that that everyone is pressed into Jesus everyone is touching Jesus in this mob. 
Everyone is trying to get to Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, the parallel of this passage that we've been reading here today, it says, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around him, you, and, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth and said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This huddle, this mob are all focused on Jesus, that they don't see the outcast. They don't see this desperate woman. They don't see the unclean woman because the reality is, is every person that she touched to weave her way to get to the cloak of Jesus, guess what she made them? She made them unclean. And yet they're all focusing on Jesus. They're probably all grabbing at Jesus. They're all touching at Jesus. And yet this woman reaches out and and grabs the hem of his garment. She grabs at the word of God, the truths of God, the promises of God. In her most desperate time and circumstances, she knows the word. She believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of that word. She reaches out and she touches him. Man, what separated this woman from all those other people grabbing at Jesus? She was desperate. She was desperate. Jesus was all that she had. This last glimmer of hope, this last reaching for help. And so imagine just for a minute that there's this this mob and again, they're all reaching and grabbing at Jesus and Jesus says, stop, you know, who touched me? And the disciples, what do they say to Jesus? Jesus, everybody is touching you. And Jesus' response is, what? No, I I felt the power leave from me. And he he turns and and, and he finds this woman probably kneeling at Jesus' feet. And he says, what daughter, take heart daughter, your faith has made you well. And the Bible tells us immediately that this woman knows that she is made well. She is desperate for healing. She is desperate for Jesus. She believes that he is the coming one that Malachi is talking about and she does whatever it takes she risks making everyone unclean around her as she's reaching for Jesus grabbing for Jesus and what does Jesus do Jesus heals her the book of Mark tells us in 656 that and whenever he came in villages and cities and countryside they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many touched it were made well let's go back to our passage quickly and briefly verse 23 and when jesus came to the ruler's house so he's healed this woman he comes to the ruler's house jerry's house and he saw flute players in a crowd making a commotion Very common in Jewish practices, you would hire mourners, professional mourners to come and cry and wail at your house. They would have 
instruments playing this kind of really melancholy music. By the time Jesus gets there, all of this is in place. It is a complete ruckus and commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And what do they do? They laugh at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose, and the report of this went through all the districts. Do not miss this. What does Jesus do to this woman, this little girl? He touches her. The book of Numbers tells us and that if you touch a dead person, that you are unclean for seven days. And yet Jesus does not regret touching this young lady. He, he reaches out for this. He, he gets all of the ruckus. He gets all of those who are not desperate for him out of the room. And he comes to this daddy. He comes to this, this mama. He comes to this dead little girl. And he reaches out the clean to the unclean. And he touches her. And the Bible says she wakes up and Jesus is like, hey, get her something to eat. She's hungry. She's just sleeping. See, brothers and sisters, we would go on and we would meet these two desperate blind men. And what do they do? In desperation, they cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. And what does Jesus do? He touches them. And what happens? They can see. There's a demon oppressed man who, who comes, the, the oppression has led him mute. And yet, what does Jesus do? He cast out the demon and this brother can, can speak. And then what do the Pharisees do? They, they consider this power that is coming from Jesus to be from Satan itself, himself. What is the common factor in all of these people? They're desperate. They're desperate. Brothers and sisters, please get this this morning. And as one of your pastors, I am deeply concerned for us. See, brothers and sisters, I, I don't believe that Jesus sovereignly saves anyone whom he hasn't first brought to a place of great desperation. Jesus saves the desperate. Jesus saves those whom have been brought low. Look at what he does to Jairus. Jairus, the man of great authority, is brought low. What does he do to the woman who's brought low? He lifts her up. What is the one that is dead? He resurrects her. What does he do to the blind? He gives them new eyes to see. What does he do to the oppressed man? He gives him and dwells in this man, giving him new life, a new creation in the person and work of Jesus. We must be okay with, we must come to terms with our great desperation. Sin has left us desperate. My fear for many of us in America is that we are not desperate. My fear for the American church is that we are not desperate. My fear for the American church is that we don't really have to make gathering a priority. We don't have to make mission a priority. 
We do not have to make reading of God's word a priority because we can become gluttonous on everything else. We aren't hungry, we aren't thirsty because we are are fat and full on the things of this world. And so when we are parched, we get something to drink. When we are hungry, we get something to eat. And that's why I believe that God is at work in the rest of the world. May we we not just look at America and deem that God is not work in this world. God is majorly at work in this world, but it's interesting to see that he is at work most where people are the most desperate, where they're desperate, when they've used all of their options, when the money isn't satisfying them enough, when, when their business isn't working out, when, they, when their children have gone prodigal, when they're battling great disease, this, these moments of great desperation. And yet we are consumers who have an abundance. And so why do we need Jesus? When I have so many people that I'm much better than, why do I need to compare myself? When I compare myself to them, I'm pretty good. I don't really need this Jesus. But as we read for our MCs this week, as a deer panteth for the water, so my soul should long for God. We used to sing this song in church. Um, I'm going to destroy this, but here he goes. Um, and, And it would say, and I, I'm desperate for you. You remember singing that song? You notice we don't sing it here at Mission? Because it's a lie. It's not in our set list. Because a lot of times, just because the words are up on a screen and we're telling God, I'm desperate for you, I don't know if I am. So why should I corporately sing lies to God that are not true? And yet, brothers and sisters, this is the great prayer that I have for us as Mission Church. This is why I'm concerned for us as a pastor. When when gathering isn't a priority, when mission isn't a priority, when the, the lost and dying world isn't a priority, when my private life, Jesus, isn't the priority, when my public life, Jesus, isn't the priorities, Lord Jesus, make us desperate for you. Make us pant, make us hungry, make us thirsty, make us realize the importance of fasting is to realize how desperate more than food that we are for Jesus for his word do you trust God's word this morning but to trust it you got to know it right that's all this woman had was the word of God her faith was built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness she knew the word of God above above all else and she knew I am I'm at any moment lost and undone I'm at any moment dead and yet I will do whatever it takes in this desperate circumstance to get to Jesus to get to Jesus see brothers and sisters we are Jarius a desperate ruler who is humbled at the feet of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we should be, we are this dead little girl, dead in our sin, yet through the resurrection, Jesus has brought us from death into life. Brothers and sisters, we are this unclean woman who's been separated from God, separated from true community, and yet has now been touched by Jesus and washed clean in his blood. We are these blind men. We are spiritually blind, yet through the compassionate touch of Jesus, we have been awakened. We 
can now see. We are the mute demon oppressed man who sins, Satan and death have enslaved even our very speech, keeping us silent. Yet at an encounter with Jesus, our words are no longer our own, but are the good news of the gospel. What was meant to make Jesus unclean could not do it. And his, his cleanliness, his purity, his righteousness was given to us. His enemies, brothers and sisters, may Jesus make us desperate once again. May Jesus purify our hearts once again. May Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, cause a stirring within us to want to sing, to want to clap, to want to witness, to want to spend daily time with Him. May we, may we not bow to the idols of this country and consumerism and money and power and, and false intimacy and all of those things, but may Jesus once again stir within our congregation, within our city, within our nation, a, a deep desperation to know God for who He is, not for whom we try to make Him to be. Are you desperate for Jesus? Do you long for him? Is Jesus better than life? Is, is Jesus better than that show that's going to come on later today? Is Jesus better than the meal that you're going to eat today? Is, is, is Jesus better than your time, your job, your money, your business, your notoriety? Is Jesus more important than your family? May Jesus once again make us desperate. Would you pray with me? Would Jesus?